to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. You might look at Acts chapter 9 and say, that's not a Christmas passage, and you're right, except it is about Christ. Christ coming into the world is often our focus this time of year as we think about his birth. And I am looking forward to spending some time thinking about the incarnation. But I thought if we're in Acts 9 or John 1 or Luke 1 or 2, we're still thinking about Christ. And that's a good thing. December, I hope, will be filled with Christ. Our hearts will be filled with Christ. Somebody told me the other day that whatever store they were in or maybe worked at, they started decorating for Christmas in September. So sometimes that kind of moves us in thinking about things. But And, and let's, let's rejoice that attention is turned to Christ. I think even within all the things that we see in our world, there sometimes is just the emptiness of thoughts about family and gifts and decorations and all those things, and, and Christ is actually being taken out in different ways. Well, let's rejoice and be thankful that uh, there is opportunity during this time of the year to draw attention to Christ, and let's use it for that purpose in our witness and our testimony with those that we're uh, with, whether family or friends or coworkers. I pray uh, and hope that our hearts would be certainly uh, filled with Christ, that we might be able to readily share the good news. I trust the Lord is uh, stirring us up in different ways through the teaching, the preaching of his word to share Christ with those around us. And uh, may the Lord help us. Acts chapter 9 is, the first part of it at least, is the conversion of the Apostle Paul. In my Bible, the top of this chapter says the conversion of Saul. And we will continue as we move through the book of Acts, see when his name uh, is changed, or at least Luke starts referring to him as Paul, but it's not here. Uh, he is Saul. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. That would have been a Benjamite kind of name based on their history, King Saul. This is a conversion that's very significant in the history of Christianity. Obviously, we look at our New Testament and how much of it is written by Paul. How much would be gone if this life was not here? We might expect the Lord would have just then saved someone else, but the reality is this is a very significant event. In fact, it's significant in the book of Acts to not only record it here, but two other times. So as Paul gives his testimony later on, 
And he also gives some in Galatians, certainly within his epistles, there are other references to his own salvation, the work that God did. But even within the book of Acts, you get a picture but as the book of Acts continues, it's like Luke is kind of an artist is filling in by other times when Paul gave his testimony with more details. And so not all of the details in Acts chapter 9 about Saul's conversion are here, though Luke wrote the book, and of course he knows them. Those are revealed later on uh, as Paul gives his testimony. So we'll read here, and you might even as we go through this passage today, you might think, well, I thought this happened. Well, it likely is that it did. It's just in your memory of another passage here in the book of Acts. But let's read from verse 1 and down through verse 19. The scripture says, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that as he was approaching Damascus, excuse me, that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go. For he is an in chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. And he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. And just to conclude, verse 19, in my Bible, there's a gap for a new section, but this is certainly linked. Now, for several days, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And you see the change in his life as he starts to preach and proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts. If we were to look back at chapter 8, where is the gospel spreading? Well, it spread from Jerusalem to Samaria, 
but it also through the Ethiopian is spreading to the south. We don't really know all of the ways that it's spreading. Even this chapter helps us to see there's something going on in a place that's not yet been mentioned, and yet the gospel is spreading there. Spreading to the north and the south, what Jesus had commanded to go make disciples of all the nations is beginning to be fulfilled. It's being obeyed as the disciples are going out. Certainly the persecution of Stephen was instrumental in God's providence to spread the gospel as people fled the persecution and went everywhere preaching the word. As we went through Acts chapter 7 and considered that, we noticed later on in Acts a group of people spread very far away after that persecution. So we don't know all the of the effects of that, but the Lord just scattered the believers. And if you've been reading through the book of Acts and you see the death of Stephen and you see the lamentation that follows that, and you think just to that point, you haven't read the rest of the book of Acts, this is a great blow to the church. And yet, in God's mercy and in his grace and, of course, in his plan, the gospel is still spreading, spreading to Samaria. It's now spreading to Ethiopia. And it has spread to Damascus. This is well over 100 miles away, but the gospel has spread there, and Saul knows it. And so as we begin this chapter, one of the encouraging things is that Christianity, those who followed Christ, are present there in Damascus, so much so that Saul believes he needs to go do something about it. And this chapter, following the death of Stephen, and actually you see the encouragement of what happens in Samaria and the salvation of the Ethiopian eunuch, here's another thing that God is doing as he works out all things after the counsel of his own will. Yes, Stephen has been taken into heaven. That bright light, you might say, was extinguished. But here's another bright light a bright light that comes from heaven that shines upon the apostle to be and brings him to faith, converts him so that now this opponent and antagonist becomes likely, we could say, the greatest proponent, protagonist. He is leading the charge for the sake of preaching the gospel, especially the Gentiles. And this is an amazing portion of Scripture, and there's foundation here for us in understanding. And again, you have three accounts of his conversion. He, Luke tells it here. Paul tells it later. There's something about this that we need to understand. Otherwise, God would not have recorded it for us multiple times in his word. So it's good to dig down and investigate. There's an appearance of Christ here. In this chapter, this is another testimony to the fact that he is risen. He had appeared to Stephen. Stephen testified, I see uh, the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That was a testimony to the resurrection. But here in this chapter, we have another testimony to the resurrection because, yes, Christ is alive. And yes, he knows what's going on in the church. And yes, he's he's working out his will and building his church as he comes and does something in this chapter. 
the save. Of course, we call him the apostle of the Gentiles. There are two visions in this chapter. Interesting. One given to Saul, one given to Ananias. They're complementary. Just like in the very next chapter, as we'll see in chapter 10, there's a complementary vision between Cornelius and Peter. So there's some things that Luke is combining together. I, I think if we didn't have these chapter divisions, we'd also say these two visions of Christ, one by Stephen, now one by Saul. And actually, by the 19th verse, I think you could say that while in verse 1 of this section, Saul is breathing out threats and murders against uh, murder against the disciples of the Lord, but by verse 19, he has joined them. He's actually joined the company of the same ones that he was going to bring back to Jerusalem bound and put them in prison. So this is a dramatic transformation. Of course, it has directly to do with his meeting Christ. Someone meets Christ, places their faith in Christ. There's a change that takes place. That person is never the same. And wow, we get the beginnings of a life that Christ changed dramatically. From enemy of God to evangelist for God. From a slave to sin, to a servant of Christ. And let's look at this time where he is still acting as enemy. So his intense persecution of God's people described in verses one and two. Verse one says, now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found anyone or any belonging to the way, that's capital W, that's a description of the Christian faith, those who are following the way, and you might say, well, that's a path of life, but actually Christ is the way, and so this is a, there's a, there's a, a word here that's describing the movement and the people, and yet it's in terms of what Christ revealed about himself, the way. And uh, it says, both men and women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So here is a man who is uttering, uttering violent threats towards the disciples. He is pursuing Christians to kill them or imprison them, we see from this passage. And yes, the word for murder here is murder. This is what's on Saul's heart. While he is zealous for his own religion, the word that Luke uses here consistently through the New Testament is a word that refers to murder, which would be the unlawful killing of another person. So I was thinking about even what was said here. I, I thought about the first time that maybe Paul in his later years is reading what Luke has written. And he reads this account, which, of course, he would have been the source for this account for Luke, but he reads this account. And if he's the source, then it would have been whatever he conveyed to Luke that Luke is now writing. And that chapter opens with breathing threats and murder. And Saul, thinking back to what his life was like, yeah, that's, that's what I was doing. And then the word murder, that seems a little harsh. 
you imagine Saul or Paul kind of looking up at Luke for a moment, just kind of reflecting on what he just wrote about him and then thinking, yeah, it's actually true. That's really what was on my heart. And that's the reality. Jesus said, out of the heart come evil thoughts and murders. This is the heart of this man. It's not just religion. There's actual murder on his heart. And it's, it's specified against the disciples of the Lord. There was such a hatred for Jesus and a hatred for the followers that he's expressing that hatred by his energetic pursuit of their death or their imprisonment. And notice how energetic this pursuit is. Not only is he satisfied there at Jerusalem, they all scattered. And so he knows having scattered, they're elsewhere and they need to be brought to justice. And so he goes likely to, as it says at the end of verse 1, the high priest likely, this is Caiaphas. And as he goes to the high priest and asks for these, I would say, as he says, letters from him, these are letters of authorization for Saul to exercise justice for these who are preaching false doctrine in his mind. These are people who are claiming that Jesus is the Messiah, and this is not true, at least in terms of what Paul is thinking. And so these letters are letters of authority, letters that would, as he would go, he would say to certain these synagogue officials, I have letters from the high priest to take anyone who confesses Jesus as the Messiah to come back and, and be dealt justice, certainly imprisoned, possibly be put to death. How energetic? Well, he's doing that. And in addition to doing that, he's not discriminating between men and women. He's not showing any kind of mercy. It's whoever it is, wherever they are, whatever synagogue, they're all coming. They're going to be punished. And it says at the end of the verse, verse 1, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem, actually tying them up and bringing them back so they can face justice. No mercy. He says in another place, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons, as also the high priests and all the councils of the elders can testify. So this isn't something that he's just intending to do. He has done it, and he's doing more of it. Later, he says in Galatians 1, where you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. This is his heart. He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. And so here he is. And what's driving him? He says it in another place, Acts 26. So then I thought myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. That's what's driving him, hatred for Christ, hatred for his people, anyone who would confess Jesus to be the Messiah. And he's putting forth his vote against them as they're put to death. He says there in Acts 26, I punished them often in the synagogues. I tried to force them to blaspheme. He wasn't content with just putting them in prison. He was trying to get them to recant or to speak against Christ when they had come to confess Christ. This is the energetic pursuit of this man. This is his zeal and hatred for Christ. This is who he is. And of course, 
he's not the only one, but he is this one who, as he was advancing, he was at the forefront, you might say, of pursuing the persecution of Christians, their imprisonment, their death. He would be enemy number one towards the church. And what do you do when that's going on? What do you do if that is happening and you're a part of the church and you see that? Well, Jesus had taught. Sermon on the Mount. Pray for your enemies. You wonder at this time if they are practicing that. It's not a focus in this passage, but that should be the response when we have those who oppose us and especially oppose our faith to pray for them. And you say, oh, I'd love to pray for their judgment. What are those things called? Imprecatory prayer? I like those kinds of prayers because they call down judgment upon the enemies of God. But no, that's not what takes place here. While you might say there's, a, there's an aspect of a present judgment that takes place, God is actually about to do something and make an example of Saul, but not in the way that we would think. No, there's a sudden confrontation as he's pursuing this course. Energetically, an enemy of God, the hater of Christ and his people, and as he is traveling, verse 20 or verse 3, it says, it happened that as he was approaching Damascus, he's nearly there, it says, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So this startling, astonishing flash of light, the word that is translated flashed here is a word that includes the word lightning and around. So there's a flashing light it's coming from, it says heaven. That's his experience of suddenly there's a light. Later, he describes it as a light that's brighter than the sun. And as he experiences this flash of light all around him, and then he hears a voice. And the voice is a confrontation of everything that he is doing. So this is the Lord's sudden con confrontation of Saul. First, he confronts him with this flashing of a bright light from heaven, again, a light that he describes as brighter than the sun itself. Later, he also says that this is around noon, so the time when the sun is the brightest, and he is describing the light from heaven that he sees. He actually does say that he sees this light, that it's brighter than the sun itself, and then the voice, and the voice says, Saul. Saul. He knows, whoever this person is who's calling him, knows his name. Stops him in his tracks. Falls to the ground as a result of the light, but it's from there. He's on the ground and he's hearing his name uttered twice from heaven. Imagine that. This is interesting as you look at the double name in Scripture when it's addressing the person. Genesis 22, verse 11. Abraham, Abraham. Genesis 46, 2, Jacob, Jacob. Exodus 3, 4, Moses, Moses. 
1 Samuel 3, Samuel, Samuel. Luke 10, 38, Martha, Martha. Simon, Simon. Luke chapter 22. Is, is, who is this? I would suggest this same person, divine person, who was addressing Abraham and Jacob and Moses is the same divine person, now incarnate, died on the cross, rose again, ascended to heaven, but in a very similar way, actually, is, is speaking to Saul, just as he had long before called out and spoken to Abraham. Getting his attention at a key moment when in God's plan, he's doing something in the history of salvation. In as he works out all things after the counsel of his own will, he dealt with Abraham, he dealt with Jacob, also significant in his plan. Of course, Moses calling Moses into service at the burning bush. But now here, Saul, Saul. And then the question, this penetrating question that brings everything that Saul is doing into focus. Why are you persecuting me? One writer by the name of David Peterson said, properly understood, this question would challenge his whole belief system and pattern of life. Why are you persecuting me? says this voice from heaven, and he knows enough to know that this is a divine being, but he doesn't know who this is. If he sees any visible form, he doesn't recognize. There are different ideas as to what he actually saw here. He certainly saw the light. He says later on he saw the light. He also says he has seen Christ, so we know that he saw Christ. But is this a Revelation 1 kind of vision where John sees the risen Christ and then he falls at his feet as dead? There's something similar happening here. We're not drawn to focus on the features or the form or anything here, but we know that in certainly in context it's Christ that he's seeing, but he doesn't know that. And it seems as though even at this point he has been blinded. He says, who are you, Lord? He knows enough to know this is the Lord. This is kurios, which is the same word as used to translate the word master. It's also the same word that's used to translate the divine name. They're one and the same. Kurios would translate Yahweh, would also translate master. Of course, this is one and the same. It's Christ. But who are you, Lord? He doesn't know. And so we have, following Saul's recognition that this is a divine being, he now has self-revelation from Christ. Christ is revealing himself to Paul personally, giving his first name, I am Jesus. Jesus. I remember right, it's Jesus the Nazarene in a later passage, but Jesus. Well, there's a very obvious Jesus that he has had 
thought about and whose followers he's trying to destroy. And the idea of persecution, this is what he's energetically doing. So the thought that these two things are put together and immediately he knows that the person that is speaking to me is actually the one whose followers I'm persecuting. In a moment, the doctrine of the resurrection, which he already believes in the doctrine of the resurrection, but he had not believed about Jesus. But now his doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus is brought into question. And that very doctrine, that thought alone, and all the implications of it, it would have been stupefying. Just confounding. How? What? Is this really happening? That statement, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, includes certainly Jesus' own self-identification. It also involves a conviction of sin. If you're persecuting the followers of Jesus, and Jesus is now risen, and he truly is Christ. That means that he is sinning by sinning against Christ's people. Certainly, there's the indication of the resurrection. Paul says later on, 1 Corinthians 15, 8, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. This is the occasion in Saul's life when he comes to recognize that Christ is risen. And of course, in terms of the doctrine of the resurrection, both in the book of Acts and in his epistles, who wrote more about the resurrection? We get our understanding of the resurrection largely, not that John and Peter don't help us as well, but largely from the Apostle Paul as he draws out the doctrine of the resurrection. But here he's seeing face-to-face, you might say, the resurrection, the truth of the resurrection. Not only that, but an intimate association between Jesus and his people. That statement in verse 5, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. How could he possibly be persecuting Jesus if Jesus is in heaven? unless there is some kind of intimate association that Jesus has with his own his own people. So that persecuting the followers of Jesus is to persecute Jesus. I think it was Augustine, Augustine, who pointed out that this was the origin in Paul's mind of the doctrine of the body of Christ. He realized the connection between Christ and his people. And of course, that's true. That's a comforting thing to know that Christ is, of course, seeing what's taking place on the earth, not only acting in opposition toward, towards that by doing what he's doing in this chapter, but he is completely aware and caring for those who are suffering. We saw it back in Acts chapter 7 as Stephen is giving testimony and Stephen is given a vision of Christ himself who is standing, beholding what's taking place. Does Jesus know? Yes, he knows. Does he care? Yes, he cares. 
He's so intimately associated that to touch you, if you're a believer in Christ, is to touch him. He feels that and cares about you and will avenge it. You ought to be careful what you do to someone who belongs to Christ. Whether they're in your own home or whether they are someone nearby, if they know Christ, they believe in Christ, Christ cares about them. He knows them. He knows how they're treated. And here, rather than, what could he have done here? He could have sent down fire and brimstone, just like he did Sodom and Gomorrah. They were enemies of God. No, but in this case, his wrath is giving way to mercy. And what mercy? What mercy to follow verse 5, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, with this command, verse 6, but get up and enter the city and it will be told you what you must do. So I say what mercy because Jesus could have destroyed Saul, but instead of destroying him, he took him into his own service. What a gracious Lord. What a good Lord he is. That, that he takes his enemies, and rather than destroying them, we know that his wrath is poured out on those who do not turn, but we also know that he, for every one of us who are his enemies, he, he saved us and brought us not only to be his friends, but even God's children. What a mercy. And, and he is making an example here out of the apostle. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Let's not miss this. That there is actually something that God is doing here in his plan with Saul. As he later writes, verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. That's what he's doing here in Acts chapter 9. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted in, uh, ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason, I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. And he doesn't stop there as he praises the Lord with a doxology, a word of glory. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He couldn't get wait till the end of the book to give that word of praise because he was talking about God's plan and his mercy applied to him so that others would believe that this is the kind of person that God could save. God can save such a person. Go back, if you would, to Acts chapter 9. I still remember a night 
We're at a rescue mission. There was a man present in the service who later said, and that verse was read and that point was made. He said, I thought I was too wicked to be saved. I thought I had done too much. And we had to tell him, nope, somebody's got you beat, and he got saved. Look, verse, verse 6, the Lord's direction now to Saul, mercifully taking Saul into his service, giving him commands now, who's in charge. This is really, at this point in the story, there's a definite relinquishing of who's in charge to the Lord Jesus. Because he had come on a mission, he was in charge, leading the entourage, you might say, and as he's a, about to arrive, the Lord just took over. He had other plans. Mission changed. Get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do, which nullifies the high priest's letters. That's not who you're responsible to anymore. No, instead, it's the Lord Jesus. Verse 7 I call this the aftermath. Obviously, there's some connected with the very vision itself, but the, the aftermath or the things that are happening either coinciding with it, and later this is explained in other passages as well, but what's going on with the people nearby? He's not alone. Verse 7 says, the men who traveled with him, we don't know how many there are, but they are speechless. They can hear something, but they don't see anyone. And uh, if you compare passages, it it seems like they heard, but they didn't understand the voice. Here it says, hearing, and the word is translated voice. It could be sound. We know it's a voice because of what was said, but but it was not, they were not able to understand uh, the words, although there was enough coming from that volume that Christ is speaking for them to know there's something being, there's something happening, there's something being said, or some sound that's being made. And they're speechless. They don't know what to say. They don't know what to think. Verse 8, again, remember Saul is, verse 4, fallen to the ground. Now, just like the Lord said, get up, he gets up. And though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And so for the first time in his life, these eyes that had worked for him from the time that he was born now have no ability to see what's around him. They're open. If you've ever had something like that happen where you suddenly could not see, some of you may have had that experience, or maybe you can't see like, you think you should, and suddenly you're just literally, there's no way for you to see what's around you. I remember getting hit by something. I was out on my lawn. I got hit by something in my eye, and my eye was very sensitive. And I, could, I couldn't open my eyes because of the brightness of the light, and it just for, a, I don't remember how long it was, but I had to recover from that to be able to see properly again. But his sight here is it's completely gone. And, and what is it that he had just seen that now certainly would be on his mind and heart? Look at the end of the verse. 
it says, and leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. I think there's, there's a couple things here. For him to have no ability now to see, and also having to be led by the hand puts him in a very vulnerable position. No longer is he in charge. Now other, not only is Christ in charge, but he has to be led by the hand. The first illusion, at least biblically, I thought about was, man, remember when Samson got his eyes put out? This mighty, powerful man that now has to be led by a little boy. How humbling that was for Samson. How humbling that would be here. For now, to be led by the hand to the city that he was going to kind of come in and take charge. He couldn't do that. Instead, he had to be led by the hand and humbly follow these men to go to the house of Judas, it says down in verse 11, whoever this man was that he uh, went to spend time with while he was there. Perhaps this was a previous acquaintance of Saul, friend of Saul, and he heads to that house. But as they come into Damascus, we also find out not only is he sightless, but he's without any food. At least he's not taking any food. I don't think there's any doubt there was food there, but he wouldn't eat and he wouldn't drink. He's fasting. That could be a sign of his repentance in light of what has just happened, in light of what was just said to him. He could be anticipating further revelation. We learn later that the Lord said to him more when he confronted him than we have here, but and we'll leave that for a later time. I, I believe what's happening here is not just the conversion of Saul, but also his calling, and his calling involved what he learns later in this chapter. But for three days, no sight, no food, no drink. And I would also suggest at some point he starts praying. Whether he's praying the whole time, we don't know. But in verse 11, when the Lord starts to explain to Ananias what's taking place, let's read that verse. The Lord said to him, get up and go into the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. So fasting and praying. I'm not saying he prayed all of that time, but at some point in that time, he is praying. He's actually talking to the Lord. What was he praying? Again, we're not told verse 11, but you could expect he's thinking about his sin. He's thinking about his ignorance. He's thinking about Jesus. Probably the implications of everything that he has just seen, like what? This has to change my life. If I get my sight back, what is my life going to look like? I, I can imagine just wonder during this time. Maybe relating what he, he has just seen to the scriptures themselves. But 
Whatever the case, this is a dramatic transfer, uh, transformation as the Lord stops him in his tracks, confronts him with who he is, confronts him with his sin. Saul's got to change. And he's got three days to think about it. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, all that time, nothing eaten, nothing drunk, no water. And he can't see anything. Can't go anywhere. He might be able to talk to people. But at some point he begins praying. Now, the Lord is at work not only here. But there's a disciple there. Verse 10 says there's a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. So this is someone who already knows the Lord. In fact, he confesses that. He's even a ready servant of the Lord as he says, here I am, Lord. What do you want? What do you want me to do? And this is a vision which would be, as we think about God's revelation, sometimes he gave people dreams while they were asleep. At other times, he appeared to him to them directly to their sight. This is a vision where Ananias is awake, but he's seeing this vision in his mind. It'd be like, uh, I don't want to use the word, it's not trance, but it's, it's a, a state in which the person is being given revelation from God, seeing something or hearing something in their mind. The Lord calls his name. He responds, here I am, Lord. The Lord gives him instructions. And look at these instructions. Without knowing what happened in verses 1 through 9, the Lord said to him, Get up and go into the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. He doesn't know verses 1 through 10. But he knows who Saul is. Oh, he knows who Saul is. The Lord gives him a little bit more instruction as he says, he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him that he might regain his sight. Well, that's interesting. This man is not blind. But this revelation and this vision is followed with an objection, which if you're Ananias and you don't know verses 1 through 9, you don't know what happened on the road, all you know is who this guy is. Look at his objection. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. So Ananias' objection is to his, it's, it has to do with his present knowledge of what Saul has already done at Jerusalem. He knows Stephen's been martyred. He knows others have been persecuted, put in prison. There, there are, there's common knowledge among Christians as to what this man has done. He says how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And not only what he's done in the past, but he knows the, he knows somehow, he knows, verse 14, the mission that Saul has to come to Damascus. The end uh, of this statement by the Lord, or excuse me, by Ananias in verse 14, he says, Here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon your or on your name. Oh, oh, I didn't know that. Of course, the Lord didn't say that. The Lord knows all of that. The Lord just confronted it. The Lord has other plans. Plans have changed. God has worked. Saul is now blinded. The mission has changed. And so instead of 
just saying go, he does give him instruction and further information that helps Ananias understand why his Lord is telling him to go do this. So as he answers this objection, look at verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. The word there is vessel. Chosen vessel of mine. To bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. This is answering Ananias's objection. He doesn't know that Saul actually has been chosen by the Lord to serve the Lord as a name bearer. Not only a name bearer to bear the name of Christ, but also to suffer for the name of Christ. And as he bears the name of Christ, he's going to bear the name of Christ before the Gentiles and Israel and even kings. God has great plans for the apostle. We might look at someone who is antagonistic to Christ and hating Christ and persecuting, and we would think God would never save, save such a person, and yet here's the plans he has for Saul. What a turnaround. It blows our mind to think about that, that God would take someone and not only turn them around, but use them in such a great way. That's what God's doing for Saul here. And that's what's dawning here as the Lord tells him on Ananias. That's his mission. And so understanding the task to go and lay his hands on Saul, now understanding something of the mission of Saul, that there's something special about this man that Jesus has plans for. He obeys. And when you think about what he does here, there's one author who just said, made the point. He said, I wonder if your faith is as strong of this great man of Damascus. Just to believe, to believe the Lord in contrast with everything else he knew and had heard about Saul. But the Lord tells him, and he states an objection, but the Lord clears away that objection, and he just does it. That's what faith does. It obeys. And yes, this man's faith is strong. He comes, verse 17, he lays his hands on Saul, and notice what he calls him. First words out of his mouth, at least in this passage, brother Saul. There's a willingness to identify and associate with Saul. The very first word that he says, brother Saul. He must be brother if he knows the Lord now. If he's chosen by Jesus to be uh, a servant, to, to go bear his name and suffer for his name, there must be that same relationship if he, if, if, if he knows the Lord. And we get a, a sense as well that Ananias knows even more because it says in verse 17, middle of the verse, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, we didn't see that detail related to Ananias, but it must have been because now he's saying it. He knows what's happened on the road. In fact, for the Apostle Paul, this would be confirmation that that wasn't just a dream, that wasn't just an imagination, 
that wasn't a delusion, but it actually was Christ. Here's somebody who he doesn't even know coming to him and telling him that was Jesus who appeared to you on the road and he sent me. And as he sent Ananias, remember, Saul has had this vision. This is this other complementary vision that is now being fulfilled as Ananias comes and does exactly what Saul sees was going to happen. Because in that state of while he was not eating, not drinking, no sight, and he's praying, God had given him a vision, at least of that, that there's a man, he's coming, his name's Ananias, he's going to lay his hands on you, you're going to regain your sight. That's why Ananias says, the Lord Jesus sent me, not only to regain your sight, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, that's what happens to believers. And so this is, this is kind of a, it's a three-day time period in which you see the conversion of Saul. We don't fully know what's taking place in his heart. We just know that he's been confronted by Christ, who he calls Lord. He knows he's Jesus. He knows he's risen. And now as he is interacting with Ananias and Ananias is confirming that testimony, at some point the apostle believes. He places his faith and trust in Jesus. In fact, we find a little later the explanation, Ananias says, get up. Why are you delaying? Be baptized. Wash away your sins. And, and I, again, I don't want to confuse regarding baptism. I, I believe in, in, as you look at the New Testament, many times as a person is about to be baptized, it's that time when they're confessing Jesus as Lord publicly. It's that open confession, their own words. And then they're baptized as a testimony to that reality in their heart and life. And notice what happens here, verse 18. Immediately, as Ananias lays his hands on him, verse 17, immediately, verse 18, there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight. And he got up. And notice the order in verses 18 and 19. Man, am I hungry. You got something to eat around here? I haven't eaten for three days. I'm so thirsty. I haven't had anything to... No, the first thing was, I want to be baptized. It was that act of obedience following faith. And we, I think, rightly guard so that people understand what baptism actually means we guard that by teaching and giving instruction. And yet in the New Testament, this is, this is very quickly following those who profess faith in Christ. They're baptized to give certainly their confession before the world that they know Christ. So yes, the order is he was baptized and then he took food and was strengthened. And then he's with the church. In fact, as I was studying this, came to the place where one of the commentaries I was looking at, the heading over verses 10 and down through verse 19 was this, accepted into the fellowship of the persecuted church. And I thought, that doesn't, wait a second, that is what's happening. Because there's all this about visions and 
things that are going on with Paul, but the reality is by the end of this passage, Paul is now, Saul is now associating with the other disciples, the very ones he came to imprison. And you imagine what that first meeting was like. He just came in with Ananias, likely, and joined them and started preaching Christ. What a dramatic transformation. What an amazing thing to happen. And really, as we think about the history of Christianity, we think about the conversion of, of Paul. This is one of the, you would say, one of the most significant conversions in light of the history of what God is about to do as, as Acts unfolds. Now, I'll just ask a couple questions in conclusion. Do you believe that God can save anyone? Anyone? Talking about people who are alive on planet Earth. Think of somebody unlikely. You got that person in mind? What about them? Can he save, does he have mercy to save that person? Yeah, his mercy is everlasting. In fact, his mercy towards that person would be less of an exercise than what we just read. Whoever that person may be, you might say, I'm thinking of a pretty wicked person. Paul said, in me is the foremost. So you believe that God can save anyone, that he has mercy, mercy enough to save anyone? Do you believe he's powerful enough to save anyone? Who's the person you've been praying about for years? Who's the person that you're most concerned about and you just don't see it happening? This passage, I believe, in part is given to us to build our faith, to help us to see that Christ, of course, is merciful but also that he's powerful to save. I know I'm looking at some of you and you've been praying for family members for years and years. And you love them and you care about them and you pray for them and you ask others. I just want to encourage you, don't stop. If God can save the apostle Paul, this enemy of Christ, this hater of Christians, he can save your loved one. Is it a brother? Is it a sister? Is it a child? Is it a spouse? Close with this. James Montgomery Boyce preached a message on this passage, and he said, many of us pray for people. Sometimes it's for a son or a daughter, sometimes a parent, sometimes a friend, sometimes a wife or a husband. We ask God to change his or her life and save the person, but often we really do not think God can do it. We pray, but we mutter beneath the surface of our prayers. I know you saved others, but I really don't believe you can save my wife or husband or son or daughter. He said we should be greatly encouraged by the fact that God saved Saul. God turned this great persecutor of the early Christians into the first great missionary. 
He took the man who had been doing the most harm to the church and turned him into the man who did most to build it up. If God could do that with Saul, God can do the same thing today. If you have a son or daughter whom you're worried about, a child who's off somewhere not serving the Lord, or a husband or a wife who's unconverted, keep praying for him or her. God can, and I like what he says here, and frequently does something remarkable. Jesus said it. Have faith in God. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that if there's someone here today who does not know Christ, who has not yet come to believe and trust in him, that even today that this consideration of what you did in confronting the apostle would open their eyes to see the reality of who you are as the one who saves and certainly Lord of all, to help them to see as well that you are risen and you're able to save. You saved this man. And we pray that that person who does not know you, even today, here in this place, would call out to you for salvation. Paul said, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we pray that there might not be anything that would keep a person. No hesitation. But just the encouragement of knowing that their sins will be forgiven. They will have a hope, an eternal hope of heaven. They'll have fellowship with Christ. We do pray that you work among us. And for us, Lord, who are struggling under the weight of the burden of someone that we know, that we care about, that we want to see saved, Lord, we pray that we might have faith. I know there are those even named in our prayer guide for whom folks here today are praying. Help us to encourage them by praying with them. And we ask, Lord, that you would work, that you would bring glory to your name by saving those who we prayed for for years. We lift them up to you. And we lift up our own weak faith to you and ask, Lord, that you'd strengthen it. Thank you for strengthening it through this passage of Scripture. We pray these things in Jesus' name.